Carrie Robinson and I first crossed paths in the magnificent Catholic Student Center at Yale University. I'd been invited to give a lecture there and was wowed by the facility and all the gatherings taking place. When I mentioned this to the pastor, Father Bob Boulogne, he said, Oh, you need to meet Carrie. She got this place built. Carrie, it turns out, had been the community's development director and raised $75 million to both build the new center and rejuvenate the Catholic presence at Yale. Her success led to the publication of the award-winning book, Imagining Abundance, Fundraising, Philanthropy, and a Spiritual Call to Serve. But Carrie had already been part of building new structures in the church long before her work at Yale. A member of the Raskob family, she'd been active in Catholic philanthropy since the age of 14, and Carrie has continued to build more structures of the organizational nature since her work at Yale. Carrie was the founding executive director of the Leadership Roundtable, a network of Catholic leaders from both the business and church worlds, building a culture of co-responsibility, transparency, and accountability in the church. Since the time I interviewed her, Carrie has now become president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA. Carrie continues to use her power, most especially the power to convene as a way to build the reign of God. I still tend to think of myself, especially in church life, as kind of like the young person out there fighting for justice. And then all of a sudden I began to realize I'm no longer considered the young person. Like I'm no longer the David in this story. Oftentimes in the perception of others, at least, I'm actually the person who has power. I'm the person who's the authority. I'm the older person here. I'm wondering if there was a moment like that for you too, where you kind of woke up and realized, oh, I think there's been a shift in role here. Well, I loved this question, Anne, and it was only upon you framing it that way. So in the last, I don't know when I first got this from you, probably six weeks ago or five weeks ago, from that point on, I've been hyper-conscious of it. But prior to that, I'm hard-pressed to think of a, a specific moment in time. It was more this gradual appreciation for this weird switch, you know, that, that had been made, because I think you frame it well, that we still tend to think of ourselves as we were when we started out in this vocation. And the fact that I have spent my entire adult life from the age of 14, working on behalf of strengthening the Catholic church, which is considered to be so heavily male dominated. That also is a factor. So I was both young and I was a woman in this old and very male institution. And so it always felt like I was inconsequential in a sense, but gradually I realized um, the access that I had and the opportunity to I wouldn't have called it wield power, but exercise influence. Just recently at our summit, our Leadership Roundtable Summit, we had put together a panel of extraordinary women to speak about women in the church. Carolyn Wu and I were speaking. She made this comment to me about, I think I had said Truthfully, I've always benefited from being a woman in the church. 
And she said, but you have power, you're rich. And immediately I thought of your, your, you know, this conversation that you and I would be having. And I clarified like, well, you mean I'm perceived as having access to Catholic philanthropic dollars. Like I'm not, I'm not rich. So we sort of went, you know, down that, that path. But when she said it, I immediately thought of this first question and how much that has really been part of the privilege that I keep getting and have to reconcile with and have had to reconcile with all of my life. I started working for the church when I was 14 too. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. I was the after-school receptionist in our parish center and I earned $1.50 an hour. And then it got raised when I was a senior to $2 an hour. And I thought that was when I was really raking in the big bucks. Like I thought definitely I made it in the church life. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit more about how from the age of 14, you slowly did find and begin to exercise your voice in church life. Because as Carolyn was hinting, there's a lot of a lot of people who haven't, but there was something that enabled you to, to find and to exercise it. And I would be curious to hear about that. So it really does go back to philanthropy and this philanthropic foundation that is a family foundation established by my great-grandparents almost 80 years ago now. So I never met them. I They died before I was born, but when they established the foundation, they had two objectives. They wanted all of their resources to benefit the Catholic church. That was their first intention. And their second was that their children and descendants would be stewards of the foundation's resources, would be invited to be a member of the foundation as a volunteer, would never be paid for this work, um, and would not of course, have to become a member, but would be invited when they were teenagers. And so now five generations of our family have been actively engaged in this work on behalf of the church through this instrument. And it has been an incredible privileged experience to see the church beyond simply the parochial expression. So we get to see the church in diverse ministries and apostolates all over the world. And um, I think has had a positive consequence for evangelization on the family because it exposes us to the best the church has to offer. And that is its people ordained religious and lay leaders Because of this experience of the family foundation, we have this special priority to attend to the youngest member of the family and collectively to encourage that young adult to run for office, to agree to serve on the board, to chair a program committee or an area committee, to represent the family at a bishop's conference uh, to speak on behalf of the family. And the younger you are, the more you are encouraged to play this role. And so it's sort of in our DNA to step aside and mentor and encourage the younger members of the family. And that um, is terrifying when you're 14, but you soon realize that your family has your back and expects you to do something positive with this privileged experience. And 14, I mean, that's an amazing age to begin to welcome somebody into 
doing this kind of work. And so you yourself received a tremendous amount of mentoring to be able to do what you're doing. Um, but even at the age of 14, do you have a sense of like, what made you think, yeah, I think I will be, I think I am open to joining the board. I trusted my, my relatives and I trusted their judgment. And I think about fundraising and philanthropy as about potential and what one can do when one exercises philanthropy, for example, really well, or when one is a good steward of what has been entrusted to one, such as our family being entrusted to carry on the um, intentions of our great-grandparents, you have the opportunity to bring potential to fruition. And most of us are just so busy and consumed with our day-to-day responsibilities and lives that we leave bringing potential to fruition to others. But if we all do that, we squander opportunities. And so I think that was also a, a particular part of our upbringing is we recognized how unusual it is to be a teenager and to be encouraged to speak our truth, for example, to church leaders or to, to donate our time on weekends and at night uh, to the church through this, this philanthropic foundation that it almost felt selfish to say no to that, to that opportunity. What is your current role or how do you define what you do now? I'm an executive partner at Leadership Roundtable. I've been with Leadership Roundtable from its inceptions, serving first as its founding director, then as its global ambassador, and now as its executive partner. Um, We are experimenting with this new model of partnership. We eliminated the CEO role and formed a partnership of four co-equal partners to offer the church an alternative to a hierarchical mindset. Say a little bit more about how you understand power as understood within the Christian tradition. Like what is the wisdom of Christianity that can contribute to some of these larger conversations that are about power that our society is having right now, but maybe isn't being vocalized as much? Well, I think this this ties into another focus of ours lately, which is helping Pope Francis with this global synod, not just carrying out a synod, but we see it more as an initiation into how to learn to live synodally. And what does that mean? I mean, even the word is so weird, you know, but... Learning how to live synodally, I I think what he's getting at is entering into better relationships with one another and with God, frankly, but, but especially with one another that is predicated on becoming vulnerable by sort of emptying ourselves and creating a space of genuine candor and deep listening and slowing down too, so that we're present in the moment and allowing ourselves to learn from one another and not just glib superficial conversation, but hearing what truly breaks another's heart, what fills their heart and learning from that so that we can 
make decisions moving forward about the church, about society, that takes into consideration the wisdom of everyone, especially those who are often left out of the powerful boardroom discussions or the influential decision makers. Well, and you're experimenting with this, like you were saying earlier, concretely by you're testing out a new leadership model that's grounded in this theology of synodality. And it reminds me, like in the Second Vatican Council, I always think some of the women's religious communities were so bold and that out of that council, they're like, well, we'll test out different ways of being community with each other and try out some things, leadership structures to like model for the rest of the church what this could look like. Like they've tried this for a while. And now you're saying like, let's try to model and we'll, we'll find out how it works so that we could let the church as a whole know, like does these different models of leadership work? How's that going for you so far? What are you finding to be the gifts or the challenges in a synodal model of leadership at Leadership Roundtable? I love it. And I um, have liked it from the very beginning. But I also confess to the fact that my portfolio of responsibilities changed the least. I had gone from being this global ambassador to basically being the partner for global and national initiatives. So it sort of changed the least, but I am now working very intentionally with my other partners and we make decisions, the most consequential decisions for our organization, for carrying out its mission are made in partnership. Prayer helps, definitely helps, you know, just sort of pausing and and taking stock and reminding ourselves that we are always in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Intentional silence um, to invoke the Holy Spirit and to sort of slow ourselves down helps. Deep listening helps. I mean, it really, these are the attributes that the Synod has, has brought to our attention. I'm really struck though, even before we experimented with this, this new model and before the synod of synods even was a gleam in Pope Francis's eye. In fact, Francis hadn't even been elected. Leadership Roundtable was created with so many of these qualities as part of our guiding principles. So we didn't really know what we were laying out and we certainly wouldn't have called it synodal leadership. But I think about, um, the fact that we literally chose a round table to be the symbol of how we would relate to one another. And Leadership Roundtable is this network of leaders from all walks of life, ordained religious and lay. So this idea of a round table where everybody has a seat at that table and everybody has a piece of the divine wisdom everybody's perspective matters. In fact, doesn't just matter. It is necessary, necessary to kind of break us out of our myopia and better describe the reality before us so that then we can collectively contribute to bringing a solution to bear or to bringing unmet or undermet potential to fruition. And there's a lot of humility that goes into it. We, we would always say there would be bishops and CEOs and they would come into this relationship, this conversation with one another. 
And we always wanted them to check their egos at the door. We have a, a an expression that anyone who comes to our convenings could be a, a keynote in his or her own right. So the way we structure our convenings is with a lot of roundtable discussions or breakout discussions to try to capture the wisdom of every participant to the fullest extent possible. Are there places right now where you would say, especially as you're experimenting with this, like I have a lot of different sources of power in my life. Um, here's one in which I would be like, if I could figure out how to deal with this sticky wicket, I think I'd be able to exercise power even more effectively. You know, I mentioned that I really do like people. And I think one of the, the keys to my influence is that I genuinely take the time to nurture and cultivate relationships, that I am trustworthy, that I'm trusted. And um, so I think this, this, is, this is a strength and a weakness of mine. Because I am I'm trusted, um, I'm often at my worst when having to adjudicate differences of viewpoint between two people that I'm friends with or work closely with, or two competing claims, you know, of, of groups of people. And they each want me to take their side and see it the way they see it. And I am not so great in those situations. I know why I'm being asked to be there, to be present. I often wish that I had more ability. I think I, I remain too neutral often. And I sometimes I would do a better service if I allowed myself to discern which side I really did side with and made that kind of clearer with a quiet confidence and spent less time worrying about how the other side would perceive me, think about me, be disappointed in me. Like, I think I, I wish I had a, a thicker skin in those situations to be more, more clear about what I saw as the right judgment. Well, Carrie, I mean, I, I so empathize with what you're saying right now. I mean, this is one of the underlying questions. I think when I said there's a lot of wrestling that I've had to do when I do research on these questions mm -hmm. is because on one hand, um, one of the powers that you've exercised is the power to convene. You've used your voice to be, bring people together and to meet and to put them into dialogue with each other. And if you're bringing people into dialogue, what's tricky about that is if you're perceived as taking a side, like, people aren't going to be interested in, like, like, you can't really facilitate a conversation if you're already on one of the sides. Exactly. Good. <laughs> and at the same time, some of the moral crises that we have faced as a church and as a society in the last five years, it's like, if I'm neutral, am I actually abusing power in that way? Because... I'm letting the louder, nastier side inherently win um, and is, is trying to hold a neutral space for people to come into dialogue already morally wrong because I should, I should take a side on this. Yeah. And that's, that's where I oftentimes feel like I really struggle. I'm not sure is, is the greater good here to keep people who don't like each other into dialogue with each other <laughs> or is the greater good here just to say, 
I take a stand on this. We're not dialoguing on this anymore. Like this is, this is not an acceptable position that we're interested in entertaining. Oh, and thank you so much for saying that. That's, I could not relate more to all of that. Honestly. I mean, sometimes I want to just say, look, you, you two are both adults, work it out and leave me alone, you know, but that's not, that's a total abdication of my convening role or facilitating role or just pure friendship even, but it's hard, you know, it's, it's almost like, yeah, I, I recognize I've got this, this influence I'm trusted. I'm sought after in this context by both even diametrically opposed sides. I'm Switzerland, you know, but I'm not willing to risk alienation even when I, I know that one, one side is, is sort of more just, I guess. It's tough. It really is tough. Yeah. Yeah. Like I keep thinking in my own head, it's all well and good to be Switzerland unless it's the Nazis next door. Like that's where exactly. I really like, okay, then neutrality is not necessarily the right place to be, but we still need a place where a peace accord could eventually, or we're, we're going to hammer out in conversation. I am. That's the stickiest thing with power in our time. Are there spaces you still feel powerless, even with all of the influences or resources that you have the disposal of trying to bring about the kingdom of God? Are there places where you just still feel like, gosh, I have no influence on this at all. I can't can't make what happened what I want to see happen. Well, I thought about this time when uh, this was in the context of leading a capital campaign to expand Catholic life at Yale, where you spoke so beautifully. So I was the director of development. I was working with Father Bob Boulogne, who became my closest friend. We had no staff, no experience, no background, but we raised $75 million, built this Caesar Pelly designed gorgeous building, introduced 14 new initiatives, started this illustrious speaker series of which you um, honored us so greatly when you came to speak and just breathed new life into the whole place. I mean, just the, the hardest thing I've ever done, the most rewarding, absolutely miraculous. And it took everything Bob and I had to do it, to, to like make this all happen. You know, it's great to talk about it at this end because it's such a wild success. I mean, and just in every regard, it has brought to fruition this incredible new life. But at least halfway through, it was so hard and it was just so hard. I mean, I, and I had a classic dark night of the soul, even though I'm not even sure at the time that I could see it in that, in that light, uh, which is probably how, you know, things are really bad when you have absolutely no perspective. It is just agonizing, like dead end, you know? Um, so this was on my birthday and I stayed up all night, basically in total emotional, spiritual agony crisis. And I really felt powerless, like completely powerless. And I had basically gotten to this point where I felt like I had a, a choice to make. 
And the choice was I could leave the work and honestly, no one would begrudge me. We had already raised much more like, I don't know, five times the original goal. It was well on its way. I'm sure, you know, people would have been like, great, you did a good job. But that option did not feel faithful to my original commitment. So there was something deeply unsettlingly wrong about that option, even though it would have freed me up of all of this emotional like pain and exhaustion and competition away from my little kids and my husband. And so that didn't feel faithful. The second option would be to stay, but I could not see how I could stay under the current circumstances where just everybody seemed to have so little faith in our work, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how much we raised, it just seemed like we, they were always moving the, the goalpost, you know, we could never catch up. So what happened in this night though, was I opted to recommit to kind of renew my covenant. And that meant, um, and so this like wrestle I had with God all night was, all right, God, I will do it, but I don't see how you're going to fix this. Like, I'm still going to be in this predicament. And the dialogue that lasted for hours was essentially in prayer. I realized I can recommit to this, but I'm going to have to give up all kinds of things that. I didn't feel like we're justified or fair (laughs) and certainly weren't easy, but I had to take them one at a time and relinquish them. So the first was, it was as though God was saying, Carrie, recommit to this. I'll make everything work out. But the first thing you have to do is give up any expectation that anybody in the world will ever thank you for this work or acknowledge your role in it. And I'm like, but that's not fair. I'm the only positive voice in the room. It's not fair, God. And this went on and on and on. But then I would say, all right, I don't really care about credit. This isn't why I did it anyway. I give that up. And, you know, then it was, it was like great to even say it. I give that up. I don't care if anybody thanks me. It went on and on like this, excruciatingly painful. And each one got sort of more unfair from my perspective than, than the previous one. And then it culminated in my, you know, the thing that matters most to me in life is my relationships. And so the last one that I had to relinquish was you have to give up any expectation of your partner in this Bob Beloyne caring about you, you know, being your friend, like that is not the point of this. You have to give that up. And I was like, but that is like the only consistently joyful, like personally motivating piece of it. But I gave it up as soon as I did. And I think it was like five or six of these things. It sounds silly now, but each one felt like I was giving up my life. And with that last one, I suddenly was flooded with this peace I have never felt uh, since or, or, or before. It was just 
incredibly liberating. I was like floating with relief. And I so much so that I laughed and said, I have no idea how you're going to do this, God, but I feel great. And I'm going to bed and, you know, I'll see you in the morning. And from that point on, I just continued the, the hard work, you know, this vulnerability, this total emptying of oneself. When I am weak, then I am strong. You know, it had this whole mystical quality to it that I, I gave up these things that were so important to me so that something good would come through me that would benefit people I would never even meet. And that would be enough. Like I trusted God to get this done and that would be enough. And the great end note of the whole thing is of course, God stuck by God's side of the bargain. Everything came true. We raised all the money, built the building, celebrated, you know, it's just an incredible faith community we brought to fruition. But all those things that I had given up, I ended up getting. It's just that it didn't matter at that point that I, that I ended up getting those things. Wow. I mean, it, it goes back to the Paschal mystery that you were talking about earlier. I mean, it, it's the um, craziness of the cross. When you're speaking there, what strikes me is like you, I've done some work both in the secular world and the church world. One of the challenges I've received in the secular world is that all of the things that we might be asked to give up in the church world, read in the secular world as abuse. Like as women, you should stand up and make sure that you're getting paid the right amount. You should make sure that you do get acknowledged because oftentimes men are taking the thing for it. And on one hand, it's kind of perceived like, Anne, you are setting yourself up over and over again for abuse. For me, it's hard to know when I let go of some of these things in church life, am I participating in my own abuse or am I really living Paschal mystery and coming through on the, on the other side? And how do you tell the difference between those? That is absolutely the crux of the matter. And in this dark night of the soul, I made those points. Like it is not fair as a woman, blah, 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 blah. Like it, it felt like it was a matter of justice. But in the final analysis, first of all, as I said, I ended up getting those things. I didn't know it at the time I was making this crazy middle of the night bargain, but it was really my attachment to it that had to be surrendered. And, and nobody knew this. This was like just a private thing. It wasn't like I was doing this publicly and therefore communicating something potentially harmful to women, for example. Um, it, it was all a private thing. And what I ended up gaining was so much interior freedom to just continue doing what I had been doing all along. And the exercise of that kind of even converted my naysayers. Like they, they couldn't help, but start to respect me more in a way. Cause I was just getting it done. And, and with this like inner confidence that wasn't distracted. Um, but it is hard to know. It's hard to know in the time, no one should be complicit in their own abuse. You know, what's interesting about it is 
my own experience is very similar to yours. Jesuit spirituality in that way is a great resource for me. And leadership is to just to become detached from it. Um, and like you're saying, I want to be careful not to lead other women down that path that that would be dangerous for them because for some it might be and for others it's not. But when I come in contact with that, it gives just a, such a tremendous space of interior freedom that strangely then on the other side, sometimes I think that can be perceived as um, threatening to others as well. That's maybe the third stickiest wicket. <laughs> the three that we've just named in the last 10 minutes too. How to deal with others who do get really frustrated with the access or the freedom that one has even in church life. So like, as you said at the very beginning of when we were talking is I actually think it's great to be a woman in the church. Um, and it doesn't bother me oftentimes to be in a room with a whole bunch of men. And then all this, like, I'll even forget that I, I'll forget. Like, I'll be like, I feel like my voice is being heard or I feel like I'm speaking. Up. Um, and that hasn't been the experience of so many women um, that sometimes I think from women's perspective, maybe I'm not as sympathetic as I should be too. Cause I'm just like, speak up. Why aren't you saying anything? You'd be hurt if you could speak up. But others are saying that's not my experience. I'd wonder how you toggle with that. I, I identify with what you said so much and have the same proclivity and disposition, which is why I said to Carolyn, I've only ever benefited from being a woman in the church. And one time I was speaking publicly on a panel about women and in response to a question from the audience, I answered it really honestly, but poorly from a pastoral perspective, because I, I sort of assumed that she and I were kindred spirits. And so my, my response was, you know, you just have to get up and do the work, which was just not a good thing to say because she heard it as you're discounting the genuine pain that I've experienced by being excluded, the injustice that is inherent in the whole system. And you're, you're telling me to kind of just get over it and stop complaining. And that, of course, is not what I meant. Um, but I've thought about that conversation and for so many years now and how much I wish I could go back, like rewind the clock and handle it differently, starting with, can we meet after this public forum so that we can talk in more granularity and, and detail and, and intimacy? Well, it was just, I mean, it continues to be a problem because I want to make things just, and it's not just for women in this case, it's for the church. Like I really want the church whose future and potential I hold in the highest esteem to benefit from all of the resources at its disposal. And it sort of is consistently ignoring the expertise, talent, leadership, and decision-making of so many of its people. I forget that what has come so easily, probably because of privilege, power, influence, meaning I, you know, I'm practiced in the art of speaking to the highest levels of leadership in the church. I forget that 
for so many, it is, it is not their reality. And I just wish I had, had had that in my mind more clearly in that interaction when I was on the panel. Yeah. It's such a, when you think like, I don't want to abuse my power, but I want to make sure I use my voice appropriately. You begin to realize like, oh gosh, the space that we're walking, it's like a really fine line. Yes, most definitely. Definitely.